its Innovation Station initiative, the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State is amplifying women and girls developing solutions to global challenges and helping them connect with new communities that could benefit from their work. Today, you'll meet a few of those innovators as they explain their game-changing, translatable initiatives in their own words. Welcome to SGWE's Innovation Station. Home to one of the greatest architectural collections in the entire world, Chicago is often thought to be architecture's most influential city. Yet the Great Lakes region as a whole boasts countless architectural achievements. For example, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the prosperity of mining, lumber, and shipping industries influenced architects to construct buildings using local red sandstone, contributing just one notable aspect of the Great Lakes regional architectural identity. Of course, architecture has a lasting impact on both the challenges and opportunities felt by communities. While buildings can be culturally significant, they also have an impact on their surrounding environments. Per the 2019 Global Status Report for Buildings and Construction, the sector accounted for 36% of final energy use and 39% of energy and process-related carbon dioxide emissions in the year 2018. And while sustainable architecture has emerged to provide cutting-edge solutions to these types of environmental challenges, it can also result in unintentional consequences for urban renewal projects, such as inaccessible housing costs and selective benefits for wealthy residents. This process is often referred to as green gentrification, and it challenges cities ranging from Portland, Oregon, to Copenhagen, Denmark, to Vienna, Austria. However, the creative nature of the architectural field can devise equally creative opportunities to support marginalized communities and help them access the benefits of sustainable architecture, especially as the sector seeks to make structures more resilient in the face of climate change. In this discussion, we are going to be learning the transformative effect that innovative architecture can have on communities by furthering social causes, promoting cultural appreciation, facilitating urban regeneration, and shaping our environmental future. Please join me in welcoming our panelists, Julie Bargman, founder and principal of Dirt Studio, and Mia Lorenzetti-Lee, studio director at Sharon Davis Design. So Julie, we are very excited, of course, to have you joining us today. Really, truly honored. Would you mind starting us off with a brief introduction to the work of Dirt Studio? Sure. Um, and thank you so much for having a landscape architect included uh, in this session. Uh, sometimes we're overlooked. And um, I'm just uh, very tickled to be able to talk about um, maybe a, a, a developed side of landscape architecture um, and architecture and design and all the folks who have been spoken before. But DIRT, um, I call it just DIRT. Uh, um, I founded DIRT because I just wasn't uh, content with the idea of essentially being garden famous. Um, I probably from growing up in New Jersey, I was so landscapes, um, mainly manufacturing landscapes, um, because there was an essential problem when I started this work 30 years ago. And that is when these sites, when these degraded, you know, toxic to de degraded, I've worked on the whole range of them, were predominated by was predominated by environmental engineers, and the and their 
remedies to clean up, you know, the sites were, were very myopic. They were quick fixes. They weren't looking into kind of regenerating the entire system environmentally. And they definitely were not paying attention to the social aspect of these um, uh, landscapes, which is really kind of absurd when you think about it in terms of, of the amount of human labor, right, uh, that was just impregnated, you know, into these landscapes. So um, Dirt Studio, and I also teach university and with my students, who I was doing some calculations, I think I've contaminated about 600 students, proudly, uh, ventured into um, these landscapes to look at what would be the next evolution of them, of not just kind of fixing them, but actually kind of creating a new and 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 making them have a product a productive trajectory again. Thank you so much, Julie and Mia. Last but certainly not least, thank you so much for being here as well. Would you briefly introduce us to Sharon Davis Design? Sure. And thank you again so much for having me. And Julie, very inspiring work. It's great to hear you talk about that as well. Um, so my name is Mia. I'm the studio director at Sharon Davis Design. And we're a small architectural design practice uh, focused primarily on nonprofit organizations, uh, many of them international. And many of our projects involve an aspect of community master planning and always include um, sustainable buildings that support those communities for connection, engagement, and growth. Um, our work is known for using local materials um, and resources as cost-effective, sustainable, and uh, lastly, such as, as Julie was mentioning, um, we're interested in projects that offer a social benefit to the communities that not only provide a service or infrastructure in the short term, but really are laying the groundwork for opportunities after we leave. Thank you so much. Really looking forward to diving in with both of you further, because I know when I was learning about projects that both of your uh, studios have tackled, I was extremely impressed. So that being said, Julie, I think you started alluding to this a little bit in your introduction, but can you talk a little bit more about your inspiration and the importance of turning toxic, degraded, or otherwise industrial sites into these usable, productive community spaces to really set the stage here? Um, I'm sorry, were you saying that uh, maybe a, maybe an example would help? Yeah. I'm gonna I think so. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, actually, I'm, I'm going to go all the way back to, you know, one of the projects that was the breakthrough uh, for my practice and also a breakthrough for, I like to think, you know, pretty much country, a lot of folks across the country who saw that there was a model for this type of regenerative, holistic approach. And that was at a uh, abandoned coal mine town uh, in Vittendale, Pennsylvania. And essentially what, and it was... And to me, what's also important is the type of collaborations we have. You know, there was a historian, you know, a hydrogeologist, an artist, me, and AmeriCorps, in, AmeriCorps volunteers that really deepened the site histories to be much deeper than just kind of the degraded site. And we essentially learned about the passive system for acid mine drainage major pollutant um, and we and we actually made that sculpted that system to be visible 
like folks, you know, uh, next to the town, you know, who helped us with the project and going along the regional bike trail could actually see the, the transformation of the acid mine drainage uh, going through uh, these basins and then out into a, a very healthy marsh and then clean, you know, water returning to this polluted stream that would eventually, you know, regen get be regenerated. So, so there's a, there's an element of of getting in there and making that transformation. It tell it tells a new story, right? That the that the community and other people can connect to. I love that. I think we've learned the importance of storytelling across all of our panels today. So I love that through line here. Um, Mia, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn to you now. Given that Sharon Davis designs work is often in these remote locations around the world. How has the studio really used naturally available resources in these locations in its construction projects? Right, thanks. So because the locations are so remote, it's, it's kind of critical to use what's available. So some of our projects are located in mountainous regions or are landlocked or um, the countries have very high tariffs on importing materials. So we try to kind of work with, with what we have and, and many times in trying to, you know, prioritize a sustainable material, um, you know, look no further. Julie, I'm going to steal your firm's name, but, um, you know, it's essentially dirt. You know, we, we work a lot with dirt. So we've experimented a lot with this material and it's typically a recognizable feature of our work. So we compressed it into bricks. Um, we, you know, mixed it with cement and rammed it into walls um, in some of our projects. So, so that's definitely something that we, you know, use as a, a free material, um, typically like the excavated material right on the site or nearby. Um, I think we have the benefit of being in these remote regions and the land is, you know, it, it's not contaminated luckily so that you can use it. Um, but in addition to earth, we also try to incorporate other local materials like local woods um, for uh, doctor's housing that we did in Rwanda. We collected eucalyptus branches and, and bent them to form a, a brisele screen um, to keep out the direct sun. So it, it's really just about being innovative with what you have on hand. Also very sustainable. So love to hear that. Really cool examples there. Julie, I'm going to, to turn back to you now. I, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, you've given the example uh, at this point of, you know, working in mine type areas. Um, we're talking a lot today about manufacturing sites. What interest, what interest do you personally about working in communities historically linked to manufacturing? And how does that really differ from working in some of these more remote locations that maybe are associated yeah. with mining? Yeah, I it, that was a big shift for me. At first, um, I taught in Minnesota for a while, so I just took to you know wanting to go see big holes in the ground, um, and and it was exactly that that it was a little trickier to uh, kind of construct the com community relation 
relationship like narrative. Um, so I have to say, maybe I went back to my roots of New Jersey and um, was got really uh, kind of obsessed with manufacturing sites because of that real proximity. I mean, things, you know, there were folks definitely in harm's way, right, with with manufacturing, uh, the, both the people, uh, folks working there, but the folks who were downwind and downstream um, from a lot of the manufacturing plants. Uh, so that's... Um, you know, that's why I went, you know, went to that because I, I, I'm thinking about uh, Emily, shout out for where I've uh, done a bunch of projects of the kind of that element of emotion. I have often thought that the, you know, these sites that get abandoned are almost like orphans, you know, and and sometimes I feel like maybe my role is to help the kind of adopting them, <laughs> you know, and and making them, you know, an integral part of it. They're not shunning them. Uh, that's the other thing that I appreciate what Emily was saying is like, you know, is invasive species, you know, system and manufacturing exists within our system. So you accept it, you know, and understand the processes, which in, the, you know, pre-relations from the seventies, not even that long ago, you know, when the environment didn't have the right, you know, folks were churning out, you know, uh, products as they, they thought they'd dump into the river, dump into the floodplain, like no big deal. And when you, when I found uh, manufacturers, I worked with Ford Motor Company, when they understanding their processes and then me introducing another process that kind of came on the tail you know, like it was part of an assembly line. You know, we went from you know, the production of toxic soil at the um, at the Coke ovens, the coking plant. Well, the next iteration, you know, I asked them to consider, which they did, was phytoremediation. Right? Um, uh, people know now are, you know, um, the plants taking up the toxins. So there's a there there's a there's a lineage there. You know, I said to Ford, I said, listen, if you can put together a Ford 150 Lightning, you know, you can manufacture clean, you know, clean soil and clean water, which I always thought they should put a bottle of their clean water in the, in the, you know, beverage holders. So anyway, again, you're seeing that it's just kind of cycles under, under understanding cycles. Thank you so much for that. The examples I think are really, really helpful. Again, uh, speaking of examples, Mia, one of the projects that I'd really like to hear from you about in, in Sharon Davis Designs Portfolio is this Women's Opportunity Center that you designed in Rwanda. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this uh, project and specifically how were women involved in the construction process? Great. It's my pleasure to do so. So the Women's Opportunity Center was the first project opportunity that came to Sharon Davis Design. And it was so rewarding that it really shaped the trajectory of the firm. Um, it came to us by way of the humanitarian organization Women for Women, uh, who had wanted to create a community center and vocational school for female empowerment in Rwanda, um, to create a place where women, uh, many of them war survivors, could come together and support one another, um, and importantly, to learn income generating skills. 
the projects organize like a little village in the Rwandan vernacular. There are 17 pavilions for education and other types of meeting groups. Um, there's agricultural land um, where the women learn farming and, and the business of farming and also a market where women can sell um, what they're growing and other kinds of craft goods, et cetera. Um, but to your question about their involvement in construction. Um, so that was not the original intention of the project. So it was a, a agricultural vocational school and on the, on, on the onset, um, but the kind of added benefit of being, having this early uh, partnership with Women for Women was in getting the, the women involved in, in the making of the bricks that were used for, for the pavilion. So um, traditionally, uh, handmade bricks were, were made by men. They, they kind of just use them, you know, make them on, on the ground. So Sharon Davis Design, we provided um, presses and tables for making them more systematic. And then the women use those and built a kiln on site. Then the earth was really extracted from the site and, and nearby. Um, so what's really cool about it is that women in Rwanda were not involved in the business of construction whatsoever. So this was a real like introduction into that trade. And it's something that has remained now after we have left. That's some exciting impact. Uh, congratulations on that. And I love the, I love the prop. It's cool to see it right in front of you. Uh, Julie, Something that really has fascinated me and intrigued me about the work of DIRT is how you really seek to incorporate and honor the history of a site in your designs. Um, can you talk a little bit about why that's important, maybe using an example? Yeah, sure. Um, well, for me, um, again, there, I always see these see sites as, as – I can't find another word pregnant with so many of the social um, and cultural histories and also environmental history. And to me, that's, you know, uh, you know, as a designer, you like dig around for a story. I literally dig around for a story, you know, because it's just like, you know, and for me, you know, I could try to invent some things to kind of uh, create a narrative, you know, on a site, but I'm like, you know, I'm like, why should I bother doing that? It just, you know, when it's, it, it's there, you know, and, um, and I'm, I actually was quite literal uh, about digging up a story in a, um, a project in Detroit. Um, and this, uh, this site I worked on, um, there were many, there were, it was surrounded by small, you know, uh, manufacturing. Everybody thinks of like the megafauna, you know, of industry, I call them like the Ford River, River Rouge plant. But I really loved working on this, you know, 100 by 100 um, site, which was just this, you know, this like vacant parking lot. And I have this thing where I look at historic photographs kind of as a detective. And on it, we found there was a fire engine. There was an engine house there. And my client... It was very funny. I, first time I met him, he, he said, what would you do? And I was like, I said, dig. And, and, and he just was like, 
And I kind of was surprised. I was like, oh, damn, I said dig. And now he's going to do it. He had a, you know, front end loader on the site uh, the next day. And what happened is basically my my hunch was right that they, as they used to in the 70s, they push the building into the basement. And just as we dug, we dug up more and more beautiful redstone that the community was coming by. The neighbors were coming by and they recognized it unbelievable they raised it and then they i i just got goosebumps bumped myself but the the amazing day was the day we were digging up it was a slab of redstone that came up and it said it was inscribed 1893 we found the cornerstone and all of that stone was not like made fresh we did on the ground you know as terraces you know in this urban you know, um, woodland surrounded by slag, which is black granular stuff, which is a byproduct of steel making. Um, and there is a connection with that landscape that folks have that I could not just found it. What an impactful story. I, I love hearing about that and really commend you for for that work. And it really makes the case for why incorporating the site history can be so important and powerful and impactful. Um, speaking of important and impactful sites, Mia, I'm wondering if you can tell us about uh, another one of, of Sharon Davis Designs projects, which is the work on the Biopata Hospital in Nepal. So what are some innovative features or techniques that you incorporated into this, and what impact have they had on the actual functioning of the hospital? Yeah, thank you. So um, Biopata Hospital um, is a collaboration between the government of Nepal and the NGO Possible Health. And um, before our involvement in the area, um, there was just really a kind of insufficient uh, clinic. Um, so this was really to kind of bring about like necessary health services to this rural mountainous area. Um, so from our work in Rwanda and making bricks, we, we kind of translated the idea of, of working with earth, but we wanted to make it like even more sustainable, right? So to not add pollutants by firing. So what we did was, you know, to, to make rammed earth was to mix it with just 6% uh, of cement to stabilize it and to give it um, a seismic resistance. And that is the, the, wall, the wall construction uh, at Biopata. Um, Nepal is, is really just kind of getting introduced to sustainable building design. So in the like grand concept, grand scheme of things, it's, it's really um, a, a lot of what we did there is innovative for Nepal. We use solar panels, rainwater collection, um, the rammed earth walls, uh, insulated roofs. So what what they got is really just a really thermally uh, a building with thermal comfort um, that really um, the only space that uses um, air conditioning is the is the surgical theater. So that that was kind of huge. Um, and anecdotally, you know, after we built the administrative building, the doctors all started kind of moving in there before the dormitory was built because they're like, it was very comfortable to be in. Um, so we know that it works and it, you know, it did give a great impact to the people who were using the building. Um, 
And just in general, this is the first use of rammed earth in Nepal. So we basically brought that trade to Nepal and there, there are groups now perpetuating the use of that building technology um, in, in, other, in other private and public projects throughout Nepal. Awesome, thank you so much, Mia. Now, Julie, you alluded to a project that I want to ask you to elaborate a little bit more on before, and that is your work uh, revitalizing the Ford River Rouge plant, mm -hmm. um, especially because of the inspiration that we have of the Great Lakes today. Can you tell us more about that project, your involvement, and, and your ability to incorporate physical pieces of the site's history there as well? Um, this was a project that uh, the architect uh, Bill McDonough, who was Mr. Sustainability for quite some time there, introduced in the whole concept um, collaboration with him. Um, and um, when we first went to his like 12, you know, 12,000 uh, um, uh, acres, it's huge. Um, but we kind of saw our concept for it. Well, the, I have to say the cool thing is that Bill Ford uh, going to move out of, you know, move to a green field. And it was Bill McDonough who convinced him to stay um, and revitalize the rouge and make it a productive organism. Right. So so he concentrated and I worked a little bit on the north end of the site where the new assembly building is, the one that's famous for its gigantic green roof. Uh, but I also worked on the uh, water systems there, you know, of actually making porous uh, paving out of slag of the byproduct. I'm heavily into byproduct, you know, again, when you kind of go into the flow of things, right? You know, I always tell my students, do the whole diagram because there's some great stuff that is not drawn most places, right? They're great, you know, that's your that's what you're going to work with. I went to the other end to this Coke oven area, and it was actually quite controversial. Um, the it it was really considered um, a, a really toxic toxic site, and the Ford Environmental Group group just so resistant to some of the ideas I had about bringing in the science. You know, taking a taking a scientist out of their basement and into the field to test, you know, phytoremediation. And I have to say, I was just thinking about all the speakers and, you know, about uh, Mia, the, you know, the project you were just talking about in Nepal, and how important and a prototype or a demonstration project, because the way I was able to convince the forward with this, I just was like, hey, you know, just try it, you know, it's a demonstration project, you know, and, you know, and they went crazy because I called it remediation gardens. And I used that language to make it accessible because I said, now we'll have tours by the community to come and understand the remediation gardens. But the cool thing is, is that we also at the same time preserved the Coke ovens because of them being part of the first manufact integrated manufacturing plant in the world. The juxtaposition of that, of, of that, you know, polluting uh, process. And then the, in the foreground were the phytoremediation gardens. Story, right? You know, of, of, of really, you know, folks along this busy third middle road of glancing at that and going, what's going on there? You know, is this the future of Ford? 
you know, they latched onto it, man. It was in their promo. It was woo, you know. That's the other thing. I'm just like, I love convincing these guys, mostly guys, you know, that that it's okay. It's okay. Get you know, you don't have to have manufacturing guilt here. Let's just, you know, move on to the next process, you know, to make it uh regenerative. So yep, Ford, love them. That's love a good story. story. That's a good story. And I gotta say, you're a fantastic storyteller. So it only uh <laughs> it only helps. Um I'm not surprised you're able to to make those convincing arguments. Um I want to just quickly flag for both of you that we have a little over five minutes left in this session, and I would like to get to a couple more questions for each of you, so we're officially in speed round. Uh, Mia, I'm going to jump back to you. Um, something that I think has become very clear in the conversation today, actually with both of you, is the idea of conditions and availability, what's present in different locations, really being informative and useful if we take advantage of sort of understanding what's there. So how do the conditions within the remote locations where you work, Mia, how do they influence the choices made in the design process, especially as you seek to develop these environmentally sustainable structures? So I'm thinking about things like orientation with respect to the sun or shade or wind and all those factors you might need to consider. Yeah, absolutely. So, right. I talked a lot about material today, but it essentially, you know, it's it's interesting to kind of look at it in the context of projects that are remote and rural because they have a scarcity, right? That's very real. They have a scarcity of material resources, a scarcity of energy resources. But really, that's how all architects, you know, should be practicing was is with this scarcity in mind. Um, meaning. How can I lower the embodied energy in the project? How can I lower the operating energy of, of this building? And so that means really prioritizing those passive strategies that you said. Um, designing a building that naturally maximizes the interior comfort and daylight with limited reliance on electricity and limiting the usage of water. So we always start every project with um, a climactic study to understand the solar exposure. Um, you know, how, how to effectively shade for uh, direct sun in the hotter months and allow for light to pass in the, in the cooler months. Um, we look at prevailing winds to optimize natural ventilation. We look at rainfall and water collection systems. So, you know, we're really looking at these passive solutions first. It's always about the passive solutions first um, to just really minimize that reliance on electricity. And um, and that's that's pretty much it. That's really what everybody should be doing. That's what we're here to share is best practices. So we really appreciate that. And speaking of best practices, Julia, I have one more question for you before we wrap up with a question for both. Um, it's another big picture question here. And that is, how do your designs help to address the needs of marginalized communities in the locations where you're working with dirt? Mm. Wow. Hmm. Um, well, you know, I don't know why I'm flashing to this, but I am. There is, when there is depopulated, you know, uh, um, like in Detroit and other places, other Rust Belt um, cities, there is such, uh, I'm going to get back to emotion, 
happening. There is such a conflicted feeling they have, right? They're both proud of probably working at some place like Ford's. They usually say Ford's. Um, yet there's some lament, right, of, of, of being on the kind of bad, you know, <laughs> the bad end of it. So there's something about, I mean, all I can say is I work so hard at trying to instill optimism in as simple a way as possible, you know, of, of just, you know, um, you know, if it's, you know, if it's uh, working on, you know, a really small park, that's a catalyst, right? But how does that actually that park kind of project out its energy of, of optimism? How does it draw local folks, you know, local folks in? And I have that thing too, where I, I prioritize the marginalist, you know, um, local folks first, and then realize that maybe it's also can to, you know, um, new Detroiters, you know, you know and other uh, visitors. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, for me, it's, it's really looking carefully at their day in the life of what they had, where they came from. Because um, like I said, I, I, I love working neighbors, they're working folks there. Um, and they're still attached, you know. Um, and so it's, it's trying to provide something that they can reattach to. I love, I think that's a great place for us to, to sort of end this conversation on, which leads me to the final wrap-up question, sort of 30-second parting thoughts from each of you. Uh, that question is, what is one tip that you would share with domestic or international communities seeking to make architectural design projects more sustainable from an environmental or social perspective? So Mia, I will turn to you first, and then Julia, I'll give you the last word. Okay, great. Um, I think from a social perspective, it's really about leaving a, a skill to the community that can um, perpetuate uh, long after you're gone. So it's it's really about, you know, that the life of the people in the community kind of thriving, you know, not just at the project or at the site, but really in a broader sense. And Julie? Very much agreed. You want, should I finish? Should I just chime in a little bit? Absolutely. Any final thoughts that you have on that? Well, I, it, this may be a little snarky, um, but I, I, it's related to something Mia was talking about in terms of when all, all of this should become for all designers. Some, a lot of this so-called sustainability should just be, you know, just ingrained, just. So I often say, instead of sense of sustainability, I call it common sensibility, just common sense, just, you know, common sense and empathy. This podcast is derived from audio recordings of SGOE's Innovation Station virtual event series. The views expressed in the preceding episode are those of the featured innovators and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, the U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government. For more information on the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, its initiatives, and programs, please visit the State Department website at www.state.gov.